welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Each of us holds on to differing concepts of nature, and how we define nature actually defines us. If we see ourselves as part of nature, our decisions will often be at odds with those that see humans as superior to and separate from the rest of the natural world. For some people, nature describes only those few remaining places untouched by humans. For others, nature can exist in between the cracks of concrete on a city sidewalk. For the past two decades, Lisa Wayne has been on the cutting edge of mediating differing views about nature. Lisa and her team at San Francisco's Recreation and Parks Department support a network of natural areas within one of the most urban cities in America. These spaces have given me so much joy. I live next to Twin Peaks Park and yesterday sat and watched the wind blowing wild irises. These and other natural areas represent an incredible success story from bringing back species from the brink of extinction to educating kids to empowering volunteers to giving us a spiritual sanctuary. But this program is also a cautionary tale about the challenges of helping keep some small parts of San Francisco wild. I start by asking Lisa Wayne to give us some context about the parks in the city. The parklands make up around 3,000 acres, Golden Gate Park being the largest at around um, 1,100 acres. The natural areas make up um, 1,100 acres of that parkland. So a very, very small part of the city, right? If you look at what is left of the original natural areas throughout San Francisco, it's around 3 or 4% along those lines. You know, then that's including the Presidio and Ocean Beach and these other places. So a very, very small piece of the pie is left for the plants and animals that have existed here for thousands of years. It may be a tiny fraction or remnant of what existed, but feels really important to hold on to. And it's one of the things I really love about San Francisco is that is that we care about that. Agreed. I mean, we are very, very lucky to have what we have left here. And to be able to be in the middle of a city like Glen Canyon Park, for example, and to sort of forget that you're in the middle of a very, very dense city is a really, really special thing, for sure. And Lisa, how did you make this journey to this job? Like, what, what was your path well, I grew up in the suburbs of Southern California before a lot of it was developed. Now there's lots of homes that were developed by the Irvine Company. But at that time, there were big open spaces. There were actually, you know, vacant lots on my street. And I spent a lot of my time, like many people who are in my profession, outdoors, um, as a kid, collecting butterflies kind of just out roaming around exploring um, the upper Newport Bay, which was near where I grew up, um, and collecting tree frogs and having a connection with nature. In college, 
where I got a political science degree along with environmental studies. Um, and then um, got a conservation biology degree at here, San Francisco State University. And I learned quickly that I really wanted to do was have impact, right? Be able to put my hands into the dirt, do something positive and beneficial um, for the environment to help restore it. But eventually landed in my current position with the San Francisco Recreation and Park Department and built a program that really focused on stewardship, right? I saw that people all over the city were yearning to give back to nature. Habitat restoration and finding ways that people can recreate, encouraging people to give back and also kind of help steward just in their day-to-day interactions with nature, right? Whether it's just staying on trails, giving a bird's nest a wide breadth to allow them to, you know, do their work, putting your dog on a leash when you've got a coyote nearby. You know, all those little things actually have an impact and are part of stewardship, as well as the active piece of it that you know, brought me to this job, which was giving back, trying to restore the foundation of these local ecosystems, conserve the rare and endangered species of plants, of salamanders, of bird life, of mammals. We have a richness in San Francisco of wildlife and plant life. It's been a joy and a pleasure to be a part of trying to keep those around for future generations so that you know, my grandkids can experience the Mission Blue Butterfly at Twin Peaks or the green hair streak that flies through the neighborhoods of the Sunset District. And I'm not sure I ever told you this, but one of my fantasies was like to be able to work for you, to go outside every day and pull invasive weeds and build paths and help volunteers, you know. Well, I say bring it on, Jared. I'd love to tell you what to do. <laughs> you always have. There's nothing better than seeing the fruits of your labor, the birds coming back, the butterflies coming back. That's the ultimate goal. But Lisa, it hasn't been easy, right? From the outset of the Natural Areas Program, there's been like very vocal opposition to what you've been trying to do. I mean, I remember when when you were working on your first strategic plan, it was kind of viewed as like a heretical document by some. When I came into this job, I naively thought, ah, everyone's going to be on board with this. This is such a positive thing. Let's bring back nature. Let's find ways that people can, you know, give back and keep these species around, promote biodiversity, get people out working outdoors, get kids out in parks, right? What is like wrong with any of that, right? But, you know, we came headlong, face first, whatever you want to say, um, to some extreme pushback, right? To um, people feeling uncomfortable about change, feeling ownership and protection of parks and how they experienced parklands. And and look, you know, like we're seeing it right now with um, like coyotes coming back to San Francisco. There's a certain element of people that would like us to just eliminate them. Just get those things out of here. I'm afraid for 
my dog, my kid, you know, and I, I and I understand that, but they're wonderful creatures and they have a very important function in our ecosystem, right? They're very good predators on all those rodents that we don't seem to like as much. What does the conflict around coyotes tell us? What do we learn from it? The coyote issue has really brought to the forefront for me, you know, how we as humans need to adapt around nature, right? Like it's not always nature having to adapt to us, right? We need to figure out what are the ways that we can we can coexist. And I think that that's been a hard pill for some people to swallow, right? I have to put my dog on a leash. I might not be able to go into a particular area. So as we came forward with a fairly innovative 20-year management plan, which took 20 years to actually create, we came up against people's concerns, fears about change, about modifying their own behavior, to making sacrifices in what I thought were kind of reasonable ways, but making sacrifices nonetheless to keep these critters around. Part of the pushback was not spending the time we needed to, to do outreach to the community beyond the environmental community, bringing along the rest of the community. And science and ecology has never been really good about conveying these kind of things in ways that are simple that people can understand years of being in this position and coming up against people who seem opposed to conservation principles, it often does come down to, you're going to change something that I love and I I don't like that, whether it might be removing a eucalyptus tree or putting your dog on a leash. It kind of occurs to me as it's happening as this like super sense of entitlement, like these are our trees and this is my dog and my park. And, and I don't know, it really seems to connect to all the other senses of entitlement that we have going on around us right now. And, and yet it feels more unbridled. It feels like people have this unbelievable lack of boundaries about telling other people, mainly you and your team. And I, I don't know, I just found it kind of shocking the vehemence and aggression that people had about these things like, I don't know, cutting down an invasive tree like a eucalyptus, which is a fire hazard and it sucks up a huge amount of water and it does all kinds of nasty things to the soil under it. And I don't know, you you just went through these kind of flashpoints. Um, anyway, I, I, I don't know. It, it just, it, it, it was really, really tough to, to watch. For sure. I mean, 100%. I think that, you know, on top of that, there's not good ecological knowledge or science, you know, there's not an appreciation of science as well, right? And I think also it plays into people's um, views of nature. It is a rather, you know, subjective term, nature. So I can look out here in Golden Gate Park a lawn and eucalyptus trees, that's that's one person's view of nature. The, the biodiverse grassland of Twin Peaks is another view of nature. And I think it's easy to step into that and say, I value that nature, you know, the lawn, eucalyptus, Monterey Cypress nature. I don't value that brown grassland in the summer nature. How's your personal view of what nature means and how you relate? How has that changed? 
or evolved? I think I went through a period in my early 20s where I was like, nature is out in Yosemite and I'm going to go backpacking and I'm going to experience nature. Urban areas were dismissed, right? Like those are urban areas, they're little fragments of habitat, they don't matter. I have come to appreciate, you know, just the red shoulder hawk that's flying through Golden Gate Park and, you know, how is it surviving there? Appreciating the resilience of these organisms that are still hanging on in this really stressful urban environment for them. I mean, we think it's stressful for us, but imagine like a quarter-sized butterfly trying to just breed and find a mate and, you know, do its thing for two weeks out of the year when there's like cars moving by and pollution and, and all these other stressors. There's a lot of really amazing things. In the city, if you just slow down and look for them, and I sometimes just try to you know, put myself in the perspective of what's it like that that bird, you know, what, what is it really trying to do right now? Right. I put myself in, in their shoes. Um, Oh, it's going to go from that tree. Oh, it's cross the road. Yep. That's where its nest is. And, and it's a surprising testimony of resiliency. Some of these critters that are still holding on. Talking of resilient, you've actually been incredibly resilient too, and achieved so much by being you know, patient, I guess. Um, How do you maintain that grace under pressure? Like what's going through your mind when you're in front of a (laughs) screaming mob of people who are just unfortunately hating on you for for trying to push this natural areas program? (laughs) You know, my father passed away this last year in 2020, which was made it even a more difficult year. Um, I really attribute a lot of that patience to him I got that kind of calmness, kind of almost Buddhist-like <laughs> uh, personality from him. You know, he was a guy who really, he spoke up when it was important, but, you know, could listen and could could hear people out. And that's what I try to do. You know, I mean, it's not always easy. Um, I've been called some of the worst things in the book. And, you know, it's hurtful. It's hard to kind of have empathy for the person standing up at the podium equating you to (laughs) some sort of fascist. But I try to really put myself in other people's shoes. Like, what are they really, what are they really angry about? What are they really concerned about? Is there something that I can learn from? Let's go and look at it and let's have a conversation and let's see if we can meet each other's goals or try to find some way to kind of meet halfway. One of the projects we got to work on together was Sharp Park, which is a golf course. And it's also the home to San Francisco garter snake and the California red-legged frog. Amongst other species, by the way. Now you're taking people's golf away from them. 
that's the perception. And there's also sea level rise. It's, I mean, I'm surprised that the, the park and rec team from the TV show never did an episode on, I mean, this is like, this could be a whole season. They've got nothing on us. They really don't. What does it tell us about where we're going in our relationship with nature? Like, do these little flashpoints and successes help us understand our broader relationship to nature? Well, I can say for certain that the Sharp Park controversy um, elevated the understanding uh, amongst local politicians, right, and decision makers in a city that's got so many, so many things we're trying to grapple with. Biodiversity, a frog or a snake doesn't really resonate automatically with a lot of folks. In my job, I need to understand that from a starting point. Certainly the golf community um, became more aware and perhaps more appreciative of um, the species that were there. I think the environmental community learned that things aren't necessarily black and white and that maybe you can accomplish species conservation on a golf course. All those are really good as outcomes. It's just a shame that it had to be so acrimonious. You were talking about Yosemite, and in some ways that was this view of nature which is unchanged, the absence of humans. That was kind of how the environmental movement with John Muir and others was described. It's wilderness is a place where people are not involved, um, generally at that time men, unfortunately, probably. <laughs> yes. And then, and now, I mean, the thing that really... Um, inspires me about what you do is that is you're saying we shape nature and nature shapes us. It's not a kind of one way, you know, we're either destroying nature or keeping it pristine, but there's this kind of more symbiotic relationship. People are part of nature. And even in pristine environments, we impact them. We suppress fires. <laughs> And then we cause fires that are catastrophic and sort of out of balance. I think you're absolutely right. You know, put a fence around it and it'll take care of itself. And it's separate from people. It's certainly not the case now that we have global climatic changes going on that are anthropocentric. And even on a day-to-day -day basis, people's exploration, the changes that, you know, the, the things that we do or don't do in our wilderness areas have an impact. Um, in San Francisco, it's kind of the other end of the extreme, for sure, like a, a laboratory test of how much impact can a natural system take, right? How much do we impact and how much is required of us to keep these ecosystems going that are, you know, receiving all this degradation from human beings, right? Humans do impact all of our lands, even our most pristine lands. We can really learn from what's happening here in San Francisco and bring those lessons about not only our impact, but how to heal nature to these larger ecosystems that maybe they don't feel the direct impact of humans now, but they will eventually. So I think there's a real opportunity in all urban areas to think about how these lessons of land management might apply to larger, more, you know, contiguous wilderness areas. And 
I think that has great value. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I really like that framing. Do you think, Lisa, that the the fundamental truth that we're really part of nature so upset some people that that those are the people that get very frustrated with the natural areas program? No, I think there could be something to that. And I think it may be stemming from just a disconnect of people not having those connections with nature, right? The, that it's also a, perhaps based a bit on fear, not feeling comfortable in nature, not appreciating the benefits of nature, you know, are vast. And just experiencing it is, is a powerful thing, but you have, to, you have to get to the point of feeling comfortable and experiencing it. In terms of experiencing it, I mean, there's an incredible outpouring of volunteerism for your programs. I mean, it's it's really heartening and just, I don't know, incredible to, to witness. Yes. From all walks of life, um, from all socioeconomic backgrounds, I think people really feel a sense of connection when they're out kind of listening to the birds and pulling the weeds, you know, or sweeping the pathway and planting the plants, right? Like there's something very primal and very relieving and also strong bonds of building community emerge out of these volunteer events too, right? The natural areas are spread throughout San Francisco in almost every neighborhood. And oftentimes it's the local people coming out to work in the park and give back. And they meet their neighbors and they meet the kid that that went to the school that they taught at 20 years ago. You know, it's really important social connections um, that all, I think, are, you know, made more easy when people are outdoors, um, when people are more relaxed. It's a tremendous amount of volunteerism that we receive every year, hundreds of thousands of hours. And then you put on top of that, the schools and the environmental education programs are also bringing kids out to have, you know, meaningful connections with nature at an early age. And that's, you know, super important for the next generation of you and I, Jared, right? Like, most of us had some kind of connection with nature, and that's like kind of where we ended up in um, the environmental movement and, you know, the environmental sciences and, you know, trying to get as many kids out and connecting with nature in a, you know, in a hands-on way. So much better than learning about it in the classroom. And we're doing a lot to try to promote equitable access throughout the city for kids to get out and and have those experiences. They're going to be our long-term park advocates, you know, and they're going to be the the people who make those important environmental decisions long after we're gone, right? I'm imagining that you're going to be a, a hologram, but <laughs> <laughs> long after I'm gone. I remember being up on Bayview Hill, which is one of the last remnants of that type of San Francisco ecosystem. And this is actually a really old dude that lived in the neighborhood and brought to me one of the, it's a really bitter type of cherry. 
Mm-hmm. There's cherry trees up there that are like indigenous. To, I'd never heard of them. And the Islaus cherry. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Oh, yeah. it's it's a very, very special place. And the, the, the diversity of plant life and animal life there is practically unparalleled in the city. You have things like saw-wet owls that I've never seen them anywhere else in San Francisco. I mean, they're around, I'm sure, but... Um, you know, if we see gray fox, that's where we'll see them. Hmm. Just a few weeks ago, someone sent me a photo of you know, the gold fields covering the top of Bayview Hill. Um, just, you know, spectacular, spectacular place. It feels like bringing us full circle that a lot of effort is made to get people from all diverse backgrounds out of cities to nature. And what you're doing is keeping nature in the city so that people don't need to get on a bus. They don't need to go somewhere else. They can experience it right here. For sure. For sure. And I think the pandemic really has has opened people's eyes to what is available here. I'm going to guess that a lot of people discovered little corners of natural areas that they never knew were there just because they needed to get out of their house. Having nature in any city is also, you know, it it addresses some equity issues as well, right? And also some climate issues, right? If you can, um, if everyone has access to nature in their neighborhood or a muni right away, and they can get out and experience that, like, that's that's what you want. One of the things that I just think is remarkable about San Francisco is you're never more than 10 minutes walk away or a short bus ride away from a park. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. We should be so proud of that. We are very proud of that, I think. I am. Yeah. I am too. Yeah, I'm proud (laughs) that that's part of the city that I live in. And I genuinely believe if you don't have that connection to nature, and this is Richard Louv's kind of whole thesis on nature deficit disorder, but if you don't have the connection that you're helping supply for everyday people, then there's no skin in the game when it comes to somewhere else. How can you really ask people to you know, reduce their carbon footprints when they're not really understanding what it is they're protecting. There's a lot here in San Francisco um, to be appreciated in these natural areas that, you know, these urban ecosystems, you got to sometimes get your nose down in it. Sometimes you got to be patient with it, right? Wait until springtime to really fully appreciate what's going on in a particular landscape. There's a just a tremendous abundance of diversity here in San Francisco. It's here for a reason, right? Ecologically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, right? The Franciscan landscape has soil conditions, climatic conditions that make it really conducive to providing homes for a broad array of plants and animals. All those have very intricate relationships with one another. Not everything is a big charismatic animal um, and that there's there's value in those little things and that a lot of those little things are still here. We're working hard to preserve them. So some of those, are, we, talk, we reference it, but let's just dive in for one second to the Mission Blue Butterfly. So up on Twin Peaks, um, I remember you and I, God, maybe... 15 years ago, released two, and we had like a Chronicle reporter with us. And we were like, we've doubled 
the species, but they didn't know how many we were releasing. And they were like, how many did you release? We were like, two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah you it? were there when? It was, yeah. it was, uh, it was with, you were there the first day. Yeah. So That's... how many, how many do we have now? We have hundreds. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Are you kidding? Yes. That actually is yes. really exciting. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. I'm like getting all choked up. <laughs> you look hundreds? really surprised, I am. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like seven. Yeah. Hundreds. That's incredible. No, it's been a, it's been a decade long. You know, it's been a while, right? Yeah. Uh, we've continued to plant the plants that support the butterfly. Lupine. Lu- yeah. Three species of lupin. Lupin. Yeah. Well, lupine. Uh, lupin. You can say it with your funny accent, however you want. <laughs> <laughs> we released two, and there were a few more after that, right? Uh, no, 10. I mean, it's been 10 years of hard work. Um, there have been more releases, local lepidopterists like Liam O'Brien and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, you know, lots and lots of people have been a part of um, the recovery of that species on Twin Peaks. This is a perfect example of a species that's really well adapted to kind of an urban environment. It it stays close to its host plants, its lupin species, you know, its lupin plants. Um, it needs some other plants to nectar on and get its food, um, but it doesn't fly super big distances. It doesn't have a big range, and there's ample habitat on Twin Peaks. And so, a combination of um, you know just trying to to continue to preserve and grow the lupin population as we've brought in more and more butterflies. I think we're at a place where I don't want to ever say it's a sustainable population, but um, we're, we're in a very good place with that species where it was pretty much on the brink of local extinction, you know, 10 or 11 years ago when you were up there with the first two ladies, the first two ladies that came back. And now, you know, the the project that we've done is being replicated by the National Park Service and the the Parks Conservancy up at Malagra Ridge. So, as you know, these are these are species obviously that don't stay within the confines of political boundaries. It's a very endemic species. It's just ranges from basically southern Marin County to northern San Mateo County. So very very localized. So the conservation of this one endangered animal, it's really important that these little postage stamps of, of habitat within its native range are preserved and restored and kept in good shape for that species because it's not like it's going to go anywhere else if we lose those, those habitat areas. This sense that the the most minute aspects of nature are as beautiful as the grandest, most dramatic granite peak in Yosemite. I mean, nature in all its glory is incredible. And and the thing that I love about what you do is you're looking at every aspect of nature, not the hierarchy of someone else's sense of nature, but it's all beautiful and it's right here next to us. It is. It is. The thing about that I love about your job that makes me jealous is that at the end of the day, you can see a material difference. Yes. And that's really gratifying. Yes. It must be gratifying. That's why we do it, right? There's nothing better than to be able to look back and say, wow, that habitat looks so much more healthy now, or that trail is like so much more safe now. I'm lucky to be able to get out on occasion and actually make a difference, you know, with my, my hands 
and not too many people get that opportunity. So I do feel very fortunate and grateful for that. A huge thank you to Lisa Wayne for talking with Podshipperth today. Lisa and her amazing team work each day to maintain wild spaces in this crazy urban setting and in the process have guided us through a complex conversation about what it means to be human. The conflicts are really about our growing distance from nature and from ourselves. Lisa's power has been to patiently and thoughtfully walk us down a path to reconnecting with the rest of the universe, one plant, an animal, and rock at a time. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, we are shaped by nature and nature shapes us because we are nature and nature is us. 